Well, if you are a guest of ours, you picked a great series uh, to join us because uh, we are in the second week of a series that's all about answering your questions. And uh, we think that having questions and asking questions is a really big deal because I think, and lots of people think, that having a question and asking a question, uh, it signals that you're open to the truth. And it also signals that you are open to what you believed to be truth, and perhaps you could be wrong about that. And so as we think about questions and having questions and asking questions, I, I want you to always remember that progress often begins with a question, and so that's why we wanted to spend an entire series uh, answering the questions of those who attend here at the Creek Church here in London, also Somerset and Williamsburg. So let me just say this, there's no easy way uh, to get into the content today. There, there's no clever introduction, there's no way to slide into it. It's kind of one of those things, it's the high dive and we just gotta jump off and, and start where we start, okay? So let's not waste any time. Here's the question. Is there such a thing as hell? If so, what is it like and who goes there? Is there such a thing as hell? If so, what is it like and who goes there? Uh, I feel like I need to give you a little bit of a disclaimer. I feel like I need to give you a little bit of warning before we start. Uh, today, quite possibly, will be one hell of a sermon. Uh, I, I, I'm telling you, it really will. Um, I'm going to do my best to preach the hell right out of you. And... Uh, I told you what I tell, tell you what I told a friend. He knew what I was talking about, and he sent a text said, "Hey, how can I pray for you?" And he was being serious, and, and and I guess I was being serious back. He said, "How can I pray for you tomorrow?" I said, "Just pray I give them hell." That's what, that's what I want to do. So, anyway, that, that's where we're going to start at today. Is is this question? Is there such a thing as hell? If so, what is it like? He goes there. Uh, this past Mother's Day, uh, I finished the 1130 service and I walked out, went to my office, picked up my things, and I went out to the West parking lot and there uh, Allison was waiting to pick me up. And so I got in the car with her along with Shepard and Grayson and we started to head toward Middlesboro uh, so that I could spend Mother's Day afternoon with my parents and grandparents. So Allison was driving, I was in the passenger side seat, she brought me lunch, so I'm up there trying to eat lunch as, as we're headed down the road. And, and then Shepard, he, he's, he's our curious child at this stage, and I think all children are curious around seven or eight, but, but he, he really kind of leans in the direction of a skeptical curiosity, and, and so we were just driving down the road and nonchalant, you know, Shepard interrupts Allison and myself as, as we were up there in the front seat talking, and he says, Dad, I have a question, and, and this is something that, that we've heard many, many times at our house. Mom, I have a question. Dad, I have a question, and so, you know, it, it's just one of those things. So, Dad, I have a question. I said, hey, what's your question, Shep? He said, so let me, let me see if I'm right. God created the world, right? Yeah, God created the world, Shepherd. You know, that's, that's exactly right. And then he said, okay, let me ask this. So God created everything then, right? Yeah, God created everything. And, and I'm just, I'm not really paying attention to where we're headed with this. I don't even know if we are headed somewhere. I'm wondering what in the world were they talking about in Kids Creek on this particular Sunday? And he said, so God created everything, right? And I said, yeah, that's right. And he said, so when God created everything, did he then look at it and say, it is good? I said, that's, that's right. God created everything and then he looked at it and the book of Genesis says that God said it is good. And then he said, okay, here's my question. If God created everything and then God looked at everything and said it is good, how could God look at hell and call it good? And then I really wanted to know, what did they talk about in Kids Creek? <laughs> and I just 
sat there for a moment and I told him, I said, I'm, I'm going to need to think about that. We, we can talk about that a little bit later, but, but whether it's this question here or whether it's a seven-year-old's question, any question that has to do with hell should leave us all a bit emotionally unsettled. Any discussion about hell should leave us emotionally unsettled. And it doesn't matter whether you consider yourself a Christian or not a Christian or a theological conservative or a theological liberal person. Doesn't matter if you're more closed-minded or more open-minded. Doesn't matter if you're more or less dogmatic. Any discussion about hell should emotionally unsettle us because any conversation about hell, any question about hell inevitably looks like this. God is on one side and hell is on the other. Any question or any discussion about hell eventually begins to have God on one side and hell on the other. Now, I will be the first to tell you, it is easy to talk about God and not necessarily talk about hell. But it is very difficult to talk about hell without in some way having to talk about God. You can think about God and not necessarily think about hell, but you cannot think about hell for very long without having to run into your headspace of thinking also about God. This is why it leaves us emotionally unsettled because it takes us to a space where we're confronted with an idea that feels at conflict. It feels at conflict with what we want to believe about God. When we start thinking about hell and we start imagining hell or hearing a conversation about hell, it will emotionally begin to feel like it's in conflict with what we want to believe about God. Now, here's some things we believe about God. We believe that God is a perfectly, you know, perfect heavenly father, and we believe that he's kind and gracious and compassionate and merciful and long-suffering and all of those things, and rightfully so because he is. And the reason that we Christians believe that about God is because of Jesus. Jesus said, when you have seen me, you have seen the father. The Apostle Paul would come along later and say that Jesus is the exact representation of God, that he is the image of the invisible God. So what is true of Jesus, it has to be true of God, and what is true of God must be true about Jesus. So it was Jesus that taught us to think about God as a perfect father who loves us as a father would love a son or a daughter perfectly. It was Jesus who taught us about the love and the grace and the mercy and the compassion and the long-suffering of God like nobody else ever had and nobody else ever will. And so when we start considering what we love to think about concerning God to be true and what we want to be true about God and what we've been told is true about God, and then the conversation begins to be about hell. As disturbing and horrifying and terrifying as hell is, it begins to emotionally, even for, even for the most mature and seasoned follower of Jesus who, who's been in the church, who's been in faith for decades, if we pause to think, it begins to feel like an emotional conflict with what we believe and know and want to be true about God and what we have heard and what we think we believe to be true about hell. Now, I agree with C.S. Lewis. I, 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 I'm a big fan of C.S. Lewis. Matter of fact, I read The Great Divorce not once this week, but twice this week. I, I love that book. And, and C.S. Lewis, he, he wrote a lot about heaven and hell and about his image and his you know, vision about what heaven would be like and what hell would be like. But C.S. Lewis said, and I agree with him totally, he said, if I could remove one doctrine from Christianity, if I could erase one doctrine from Christianity, if it were in my power to do so, it would be the doctrine of hell. And I agree. 
If I could, if I could be the editor in chief, if, if I got an eraser, if I got a, you know, a, a black marker and I got to mark out what I didn't like and what I didn't want to be true, without a shadow of a doubt, the first place that I would run to is every passage, every illusion, every example, every reference to hell. I agree with him wholeheartedly. I know exactly what he was saying, that if I could remove anything from being a reality, it would be hell. Now, when C.S. Lewis, when he pictured hell, he pictured hell as a city that kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, but everybody kept getting lonelier and lonelier and lonelier. C.S. Lewis pictured hell as a place without color. It was gray. It was rainy. He pictured hell as a place where people, they thought it and they got it. Everybody got exactly what they wanted simply by thinking about it. That hell was a place that was gray, it was rainy, it was without color, and everybody got what they wanted. And in doing so, their whole world became about them. And they couldn't get along with each other, so they would move further and further and further and further and further apart until they were completely and absolutely alone. That's how he pictured hell. Let me ask you a question. How do you picture hell? What comes to your mind when you think about hell? If someone came up to you and said, hey, I would like for you to tell me what hell is like or what you believe hell is like, what would you tell them? And then let me ask you this, what you believe to be true about hell and what you think to be true about hell, how do you know if that's true or not? How do you know if what you've been told about hell or what you've picked up from culture or what you've picked up along the way from different people in different circles, how do you know if what you've been told and what you've picked up on about hell, how do you even know if that's accurate or not? Have you challenged your own ideas about hell? Has anybody challenged your ideas about hell? What it's going to be like, who it's for, what it is exactly. So what comes to your mind when you think about hell? Now, before we talk about this, because it's disturbing and, and it's, it's horrible and it's terrible, and, and it's often a subject, hell is a subject that often creates more questions at the end than it gives answers. I want you to know up front that when it comes to hell, there may be no emotionally satisfying answers to our emotionally disturbing questions. We love a resolve. We, we love a bow on top of the box. We love a final period. We love the end of the story. We, we love where it all makes sense. We love the, aha, I get it. That makes sense to me. That, that feels good to me. That feels right to me. And I just wanna be upfront to say that hell is one of those subjects among other subjects there may be no emotionally satisfying answer to our emotionally disturbing questions. So if you are hoping that at the end of what I have to say that there's going to be a resolution in your mind and in your heart emotionally or spiritually when it comes to hell, that quite possibly will not be the case. Now, the idea of hell as it was presented to many of us, not all of us, but some of us, but maybe many of us, it was presented to us as a place as a place of conscious, a place of conscious, unending, eternal pain, punishment, and torment for the unbeliever, for the unrighteous, for those who would not accept Christ, you know, any descriptor that you want to put in there, that it was presented to many of us as a place of unending, conscious punishment and torment and judgment. That's how it was presented to us. And it wasn't easy to think about then, and it's not easy for us to think about now because I think that most people don't think about hell because we don't like to think about hell and things we don't enjoy thinking about, we just don't think about it. But think about eternal, think about unending, 
Think about torment, punishment. Think about that lasting an infinite amount of time for those who are called the unrighteous or the unbeliever or those who don't receive or however you want to describe that group. That's horrifying to think about. That's terrifying to think about. Torment and punishment that is without end. As a kid, I can remember hearing uh, sermons about hell all the time. I, I feel like growing up, I had some really, really talented pastors because they could find a way to get hell in any, any sermon. Maybe, maybe you had that pastor. I mean, it didn't matter if it was Easter, hell. No matter if it's Christmas, manger, then hell. I, I mean, it didn't matter if it's Advent, it didn't matter if it's Lent, the first of the year, the middle of the year, the end of the year. Hey, some really creative ways to get hell in every sermon. And, and I, could, I, I would sit back there, but the third seat from the back, and I would hear the, the well-worn, familiar phrases of hell. Weeping and wailing. Weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Flames of fire. Utter darkness. Fiery furnaces where the worm dies not. And I would sit back there as a kid, and I would, I would be literally shaking in my pew. I, I, it, it so bothered me, and I found it so horrible, and I found it so terrifying to even to try to imagine what they were talking about. And then on top of that, I think they still do them, but I haven't seen one in a long time. They would do these dramas. And in these dramas, you know, Joe would stand before Jesus. And as Joe stands before Jesus, everybody in the crowd knew it wasn't going to work out for Joe. Because in the background, here were some people in black robes. They're crawling on the floor, and those are demons. And everybody knew Joe's a goner. Joe, Joe doesn't have a prayer. And there's Joe standing before Jesus. And you knew what was going to happen. Jesus was going to stand up. He was going to open the book, and he was going to say, hey, depart from me. I never knew you. And then the demons grab Joe, and they just start jerking him and pulling him. He starts screaming. And they just start jerking him through those double doors, which was into the foyer, but it was supposed to be hell. And so then they pulled him on in there and there's smoke back there and it's red light and everybody knew exactly what this picture was communicating and it was horrible it was terrifying and then evangelists would come visit the church and tell stories about burning cars and there was a family in a burning car and everybody was outside pleading with them do you know Jesus do you know Jesus do you know Jesus and then they would give an invitation to say, that's what's awaiting you forever being trapped in a burning car a burning house without exit I think the reason I sleep so well now is because I didn't sleep from ages five to like 16. <laughs> every night, I, I'm serious, every night I, I would go to bed and th these images would come to my mind and I would get so anxious and I would, I, I would just get so emotional. I would pray the sinner's prayer every night. Now I know some of you Baptists, it's like, oh, you only have to pray it once. Eternal security. Now, I know some of you Baptists would never do that, but, but I wasn't a good Baptist then, and I'm not a good Baptist now. I don't even know if I am a Baptist. But, but here's the deal. How many of you, because you were so horrified of hell, you prayed the sinner's prayer more than once in your life? Just go ahead. Don't be ashamed. You've got good sense. The rest, dumb as rocks. <laughs> Taking their shot at it? I don't, I don't know. I don't know what you're thinking, but I mean, that was my childhood. And for some of you, that was your childhood as well. And then I grew older. And you mature and you, you, you learn more about the world. You learn more about the scripture. You learn more about God. And then you, you begin to pick up on some things that you didn't pick up on before. And you begin to hear some things the way you didn't hear them before. And, and what I'm about to say is not true everywhere. And it's not true of all Christians, but it was, some, it was true of some Christians. And, 
And as you read and as you listen, unfortunately, it is true of a lot of Christians. As I began to listen with a new set of ears and a new filter in a little bit different stage of life, it, it seemed as though some Christians, when they talked about hell, again, not all Christians, but some Christians, that when they talked about hell, it was almost like they were excited that people were going there. That certain people were going there. That certain sinners were going to get what was coming to them. They were going to get what they deserved. And I think looking back on it, I think that hell for some people exposes an animus that they have towards some of their neighbors. Because some Christians, they talk about Muslims and it's almost like they're excited at the prospect that they may go to hell. For some, it was their gay neighbor. For some, it was their liberal neighbor. For some, it was their conservative neighbor. But there, there were some neighbors in their life that it was almost like they were excited that one day they're going to get it. They're going to get what's coming to them. They're going to get what they deserve. And, and you listen to people talk about this. Some of these people talk about it. And it was almost like God is angry. And God, he, he's got the lighter and he just can't wait to light the furnace. This is so crept into American Christianity. You don't have to believe me, that's okay. I can be wrong, but I don't think I am. This is so crept into American Christianity. It really is unique in many ways to American Christianity. N.T. Wright, great scholar, uh, you, 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 just a brilliant man. He remarked, he's, he's English, he's, he's from Great Britain. He remarked that Americans, unlike any other people on the planet, have almost a fixation with hell. And I think that that is partially true. And it's because of our history. Few sermons, few sermons have influenced the way that Christians think about God and hell like sinners in the hand of an angry God. That was the title of the sermon by Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards, far more brilliant than I have ever been or ever will be. But Jonathan Edwards, who was on the front side of the Great Awakening in the 1700s, he preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God that still to this day continues to shape what people think not only about hell, but think about God. This is a portion of his sermon. Listen to this. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome, loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you. That is, he hates you. He abhors you, you loathsome thing, and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. The Great Awakening happened, and it was in a marvelous time in American history, and many, many people were saved. But even when God is doing a great work, there's always things happening on the peripheral that undermines the faith of some and the faith of others and perhaps leads us into some misunderstanding about some things that we shouldn't have a misunderstanding about. And so this began to be the way that people thought about God, that God hates you, that God hates people, that he abhors, he considers you loathsome, he considers you worthy of nothing else but fire. And it took hold. So much so that my favorite hymn writer, Isaac Watts, who wrote my favorite hymn, which is When, when I Survey the Wondrous Cross, Isaac Watts penned these words. What bliss will fill the ransomed souls when they in glory dwell to see the sinners as he rolls in quenchless flames of hell. Fa-la-la-la-la. <laughs> this was all happening in the 1700s. This was all happening on the front side and the mid side of the Great Awakening. And this idea of hell, this portrayal of God in hell, it took root. 
No wonder some of us picked up an unhealthy view of God. No wonder some of us picked up some misunderstandings about hell. Perhaps that's the reason some of our faith, we struggle with it today because of our unhealthy view of God that we still hang on to. Maybe that's why you decided faith wasn't for you, that God wasn't for you. Maybe it was because of some things like this. Because how people talked about hell ended up influencing how we felt about God. How some people talked about hell influenced how we felt about God. Now, let me also say this, because I gotta say some things before I leave us where we're gonna be left at today. If the idea of hell excites you, if the idea of hell comforts you, if the idea of hell is that certain groups of people are gonna get what they deserve, you couldn't be further from the heart of God. You could not be further from the heart of God. But if hell bothers you, if hell breaks your heart, if hell nauseates you, if hell makes you sick physically to even think about it, I think that we are moving in the direction of God's heart as it relates to this thing called hell. At some point, hell became a tactic. It became a strategy. It really happened in the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages. It was the perfect storm, illiterate people, a politically powerful church a corrupt priesthood. And all of a sudden, it was an opportunity to control people and to ensure compliance from the people by threatening and manipulating people with hell fire and the threat of hell. And the church in the Middle Ages, you can study church history for yourself, they quite literally in the minds of the people held the key to heaven or hell and who went where. Thomas Aquinas, who, who many of you have heard about, who was a theologian in the 1200s, Thomas Aquinas, he developed a theology about hell that said this, that in hell we will give God more copious amounts of worship because in heaven, we will be able to see into the realm of the damned and we will watch them punished and we will watch them in torment. And because we can see what's happening to them, we will worship God more perfectly. This was shaping how people would think about hell and feel about God for centuries, even prior to the Great Awakening, even before the last 300 years of our nation's history. In the Middle Ages, people began to picture hell through art and Satan chewing and gnawing on people and reptiles eating folks. And, and, and here's some more. I'm just going to give you quick shots of people burning in hell, you know, demons torturing people, people being cooked alive yet not dying in cauldrons. And, and you know, there it is again, fire, kind of depths of hell over here. Satan, he, he's got the worst sinners, you know, by himself. And then if you zoom in right there, it's just, you know, people groups, Certain people groups had an idea that other people groups were destined to go to hell. You know, our enemies are going to hell, but we're not. You know, that ethnic group is going to hell, and we're not. Those people who behave like that, they're going to hell, and we're not. And, and so hell, it became weaponized. It became part of culture, both inside the church and outside the church. Some of you remember from literature, Dante's Divine Comedy. Written around, you know, 100 or so years before the printing press. It's regarded as one of the greatest pieces of literature in all of history. But Dante pictured hell, you know, he was getting a tour by Virgil the poet, and he pictured hell with nine circles. And, and each hell was, you know, each, each, you know, division of hell became a little bit worse. And then, you know, at the bottom level of hell, there was a frozen lake, and there was Satan frozen up to his waist, and the worst sinners of history are there, and there Satan is. He's gnawing on, you know, Judas and, and people like that. Well, that's how he pictured hell. And he wrote it down, and, and some of that stuff crept in to the way that Christians and non-Christians thought about hell and thought about God. And it's still at play today. 
And, and the reason I say all this is because what we think about hell is connected to what we think about God and feel about God, both on the front side and the back side. This is a big deal. What you think about hell, how you talk about hell, how we talk about hell as Christians, it has a lot to do with what we think about God and how we feel about people. All throughout church history, Christians have used the justification of torture and the justification of evil acts against people because of hell. You, you can find it time and time and time again. When Queen Mary, Bloody Mary I, when she you know, persecuted Protestants, she said, hey, one of the greatest favors that I can do God is that if God is one day going to let all heretics burn in fires throughout eternity, I could imitate him in this life and burn them now. Pope Urban II did it when he commissioned the Crusades and he said, hey, let us go cleanse this vile race from the planet. In Calvin's Geneva, the Protestant Reformation, they persecuted the Anabaptists, persecuted other groups. Because oftentimes what we think about God and his judgment and his justice and hell, it shapes the way that we treat people. Matter of fact, a misunderstanding of God's justice, and this is important, a misunderstanding of God's justice towards humans tends to lead to injustice among humans. When we misunderstand God's justice towards humans, we end up creating injustice among human beings. If we get this wrong, it is a big, big deal. So within the church, among Christians, among theologians, there's different views of hell, lots of them, but, but I wanna give you four. Here, here are four views of hell that, that, that many Christians have. The first one is it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. It, it's just, it's, it's a myth. Hell is a myth. It doesn't exist. The second position people have is it does exist and it's described literally in the scriptures. That means there's real fire, there's real flame, there's real furnaces, there's real smoke. It is, it is literally true in every way. The third position is it does exist and is described metaphorically in the scriptures. And the position is that, hey, how do you describe something that's indescribable? Well, you do it with a metaphor. So you take fire and you take a furnace and you take smoke and you take all of these things, these images, in order to communicate how horrible hell is going to be. And then the fourth position is it does exist, but it will not exist forever. There's a group of people who believe that at the final judgment, God will cast the unrighteous, the unbeliever into the lake of fire and they will cease then to exist. And so those, those are you know, pretty much the big positions as it relates to hell. Now, to me personally, I don't think number one is an option. I just, I just can't see it. It just doesn't seem viable if you take the scripture seriously. I just, I just don't know how you could, how you could think that. I hope, it's, I hope I'm wrong. I hope it doesn't exist. I think you should hope it doesn't exist. R.C. Sproul, reformed theologian, as conservative as they come, R.C. Sproul was asked, what is the most bothersome doctrine to you, Dr. Sproul? And he said, without a shadow of a doubt, without even having to give a moment's thought to it, it is hell. That's the doctrine that I struggle with most. I think it's probably when our hearts are in line with God's heart, when we're thinking as we should think, I think it probably should be the thing that bothers us most as well. The majority of Americans believe in hell, but hardly any of them think they're going. That's kind of how it works. And so some of you may believe two, and some of you may believe three, and some of you may believe four, but my point is not to try to say, hey, which one of these is right and which one of these is wrong. But I, I first of all want to make the point is that we should all hope that... Phew, I kind of hope it's not. 
John Walford, who, who is conservative as they come, Google his name, read about him. Some of you read his stuff. Here, here's what he said. He said, even the most ardent advocates of eternal punishment, those who believe in hell most passionately, must confess shrinking from the side of hell as continuing forever. It is only natural to harbor the hope that such suffering may somehow be terminated. J.I. Packer, who, who wrote the classic, Knowing God, J.I. Packer, the Reformed theologian, he said, no evangelical, I think, need to hesitate to admit that in his heart of hearts, he would like universalism to be true. That is, that everybody ultimately gets to heaven. He said, I think that every person ought to hope that that's true. Who can take pleasure in the thought of people being eternally lost? Who can do that? If you want to see folk damned, there is something wrong with you. So what do we do with hell? Well, I think that what I'm going to do, this is a sermon unlike any sermon. I'm going to tell you what the person who said the most things about hell, what he said. And the person who spoke most about hell was Jesus. Jesus spoke more about hell than anybody else. And that's either troubling to you or comforting to you. Jesus spoke more about hell than anybody else. Now, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you take seriously the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, you listening? You have to then take everything that Jesus said seriously. If you take the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus seriously, you have to take everything else that Jesus said seriously. But again, that doesn't, that doesn't get us to the place where most of us want to be a place of resolve because... Knowing what Jesus said is one thing. Knowing what Jesus meant by what he said is quite another thing. Knowing what Jesus said is one thing, but knowing what Jesus meant by what he said is quite another thing. Here's, what, here's some things Jesus said. I'm just going to let his words speak without very, very little commentary. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, the sermon where he says, Blessed are those who, and hey, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He said this. He said, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to, tell me what this word, let's all say this word together, destruction. It's not a pleasant word. It's not a positive word. But Jesus used the word destruction. It leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to, let's read this one together, life. And only a few find it. Here's what it seems as though Jesus believed. Jesus seemed to believe that there were two roads that led to two different destinations. And that there's two different groups of people on that road heading to those individual destinations. And Jesus said the road that leads to destruction is wide with many people on it. And the road that leads to life eternal, life everlasting, is a narrow road and few are on it. Jesus seemed to teach that more people, for whatever reason, would choose destruction rather than life. That's what Jesus seemed to teach. We shouldn't like that. We shouldn't find joy in that. We should be bothered by that. We should be broken by that. Jesus said, there's a wide road, there's many on it. And at the end of that road is destruction. There's a narrow road, and it leads to life, but only a few find it. In another interesting passage, Jesus said this. He said, the servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not know what the master wants will be beaten with how many? Many blows. Are you ready for this? Some of you didn't even know this one was in the Bible. 
But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Some folks seem to think that Jesus was inferring that hell will not be the same for everyone. That someone who was an unbeliever, that they were, you know, a decent person, will not be side by side in the next life in hell with somebody like a Stalin or a Hitler who committed mass atrocities and genocide against entire people groups. It's interesting to think about. Jesus doesn't tell us exactly what he meant. But Jesus gives us a parable to perhaps get us thinking or maybe to point us in a direction to say that maybe hell's not going to be the same for everyone. That there is a level of justice even in those who take the broad road and end up in destruction. That it will not. Some will have many and some will have few. Jesus told another story one time about a king who had a son and there was going to be a wedding banquet. And so the king, the father, he sent his servants out to all those that he had invited to the wedding ahead of time to tell them, hey, it's time to come to the wedding banquet. And when he sent his servants out to those who he had invited to come to the wedding party... They refused to come. Some of them fled and went a different direction, but others in this parable, this story that Jesus told, not a true story, but but a made-up story to communicate a point. In this made-up story that Jesus says, he says, but others, these people who were invited to the party, when the servants came from the king to say, hey, it's time to come to the party, the people who were invited killed the servants, killed them. Well, then the king heard about it, and he sent his army to deal with those people. And then he looked at his other servants and said, Okay, since those who were originally invited refused to come in, I want you to go out into the highways and the hedges, and I want you to invite everybody to come in. No matter who, no matter what, tell them to come on in. And not worry about what they're going to wear, because I will provide the clothing. That was customary in the culture of the day, and that's what Jesus is leveraging in this story. And then Jesus said that they came, and the king gave them clothes, so to speak. But he says there was one who showed up that didn't wear the clothing that was provided for him, and this is what Jesus said. It says, then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, this person who showed up without wearing the clothes that the king had provided, and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That he could not come to the king's banquet on his own terms, wearing his own clothing. He had to come to the banquet on the king's terms and what had been provided to him by the king. Towards the end of Jesus' ministry, Jesus said that, I'm going to come again. I'm going to go away, but I'm going to come again. We call it the second advent or the second coming of Jesus. Jesus said, when I come again, I am going to break through the eastern sky I am going to return to this earth in all of my glory with all the holy angels, and I am going to sit upon my glorious throne. And he said, in those days, at the end of the age, all the nations will be brought to me. And it will be as a shepherd who separates goats from the sheep. He said, in that day, there will be a great division among the people. There will be a great separation of the people between what Jesus called the sheep and the goats. Jesus would look at those on his right, the sheep, and he would say, I want you to enter into the kingdom of God. I want you to enter into the joy of the Lord. Because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was a stranger, you invited me in. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you took care of me. When I was in prison, you came to see me. And the sheep on his right said, Jesus, 
When did we do those things? And Jesus said, when you did it to the least, you did it unto me. And then the goats who were on his left, he says, hey, I was hungry and thirsty and I was a stranger and I was naked and I was sick and I was in prison, but you did nothing for me. And they said, Jesus, when did we do nothing for you? And he said, when you refused to do it for the least of these, you refused to do it for me. And then Jesus closed the story like this. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus seemed to believe that there would be a division, that there are two destinations, that there's two groups, there's two roads, there's sheep and there's goats. And he also seemed to believe that hell was never created for people to begin with. Hell was never intended for people. It was intended for Satan, for the devil and his angels. Last one. Jesus taught a parable one day and says, the kingdom of God is like a good man who went out and sowed seeds of wheat into the field. And then when he went to sleep, an evil man came behind him and sowed the tares among the wheat or weeds among the wheat. Well, he didn't know about it, but when the time came that the weeds began to sprout, so did the wheat. So the wheat and the tares were both sprouting at the same time. And so the workers of the field came to the master of the field and said, hey, master, should we go out and pull up the tares? Should we go up and pull up the weeds? And he said, no, 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 no. Don't pull up the tares. Don't pull up the weeds, lest you also pull up the wheat. He said, we will wait until the harvest time because at the harvest time, I will send my harvesters into the field and we will separate the weed from the wheat and we will bundle the weeds together and we will throw them into the fire and we will burn those weeds. <laughs> have you ever heard one of my sermons and you left and you had no idea what I was talking about? I'm sure you have. You may be there today, but you know what? They did it to Jesus first because later on that day, his disciples, as soon as they got a moment with Jesus, they were like, would you please tell us what in the world the weeds in the field and all that's about? He answered, he said, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send out his angels and they will weed out his kingdom, everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And then listen to Jesus' words. Whoever has ears, let him hear. See, Christians wanna know, pastor, do you think it's literal? Or do you think it's metaphorical? So that's, that's where we get to. Some of you just want you to hear what I think. You want me to tell you what I think, what you should think. And so we get caught up in little discussions about, do you think it's literal or do you think it's metaphorical? And here's what I think. Here's what I think the point is. I think Jesus was trying to communicate through imagery. I think Jesus was trying to communicate through terms that people would understand. Jesus would reference Gehenna, which was a place just outside of Jerusalem. It was a place where garbage was burned. It was a place where those who had been executed, their bodies were taken to rot and to burn. It was a place where sewage gathered. It was a disgusting, horrible place. And, and Jesus leveraged that imagery 
He, he leveraged phrases. He, he told stories. And he, he did all of it to make the point. And this is what I think the point is. As horrible as I could ever imagine hell could be, as horrible as what you could ever imagine hell to be, it will be worse. As bad as you think, as horrible and as disturbing and emotionally unsettling as what you could ever dream up, it will be worse. Jesus talked a lot about hell, but in a way that never repelled people. In a way that never caused people to have a compromised view of God or the wrong idea of God. He dealt with it in such an artful way, in such a tasteful way, in such a gracious way, in such, in such a masterful way that nobody left hearing Jesus talk about this without also believing that God was loving and gracious and kind and willing to forgive. Jesus' first followers would also talk about hell and future judgment. Some of them would write about it. John, who was one of the first followers of Jesus, who would write the Gospel of John and also three other little books that we call First and Second and Third John. John, who was prisoner of Rome, in the last stage of his life, the last few years of his life, he received a vision. And Jesus showed John what it was going to be like at the end of the last age. And this is the vision, a chilling horrifying, disturbing picture of what Jesus says it will be like in the end. John said, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and the books were opened. Another book was opened which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of the fire is the second death and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. If you're a follower of Jesus, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, that should break our heart. That should bother us that should cause us to pause. That should cause us to think about the people in our lives that are perhaps far from God. That should cause us to stop and maybe pray a bit differently than we've been praying and be a bit more intentional than we've been intentional. The thought of this happening, the, the, the possibility of this happening should just, should just break us. It should nauseate us. It should, it should be difficult to even want to think about for very long at all. And I think the reason that it should break our heart is because I believe with all of my heart, it does break God's heart. 
We're never presented with the idea that hell is God's choice for anyone. We're presented over and over and over and over again that for whatever reason, hell is a choice for individuals. That for whatever made them choose, they offered not to go the way that leads to life, but they offered, they offered, they opted to go the way of destruction. That it became their choice, an irreversible choice. I think the point is that hell will be the place where everyone gets what they chose. A painfully eternal separation from God. And do the details matter? Does literal, metaphorical, place, does it matter? The horror of hell is a separation from everything good, from everything loving and everything kind. It is a separation from God's goodness, grace, and love. And you may say, well, why would God, why would God even let anybody go to hell? Why would God even let someone choose to go to hell? I'm just going to tell you what I think. God could have created a humanity that would choose him, love him, like robots. But God chose to place at the heart of creation love. And love has a fundamental requirement of the ability to choose to accept love or reject love. In order to be able to choose on behalf of love, you have to also be able to choose on the side of rejecting love. The fact that God commanded us to do things shows that we have the choice of obeying or not. The fact that he gives us an invitation into something wonderful, the family of God, the kingdom of God, into grace, into forgiveness, is an indication that we can choose to accept the invitation or reject the invitation. Even in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 18, God says, that's the destination, that's what happens, that's the reality in the end for the wicked. But I take no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. I take no pleasure in that. God gave us the ability to choose love because in the absence of the ability to choose love, there is no love. And he has invited us to make a choice. Yeah, but what about the person who never hears? What about that person over somewhere? And here's what I wanna say about that. If there's any heart that I can trust, it is the heart and the hands of a loving God I trust that he is just. I trust that he is merciful. I trust that God will always do the right thing. But for right now, this should break our heart. And what I would say to you, if you haven't already, choose Jesus. He's our only hope. He took our hell. And he stood there hanging in the darkness of the cross so that we would never have to have the darkness of hell, so that we could stand in the light of his love. He endured the hell of being separated from his father so that you and I would never have to be alone. Heavenly Father.
break our hearts for those who are far from you. Help us to help us to be intentional. If someone's here and they've never received Jesus, with your heads bowed and eyes closed, I would love to give you an invitation that first came from your heavenly father that said, would you accept my gift of grace and forgiveness in life? You could just pray a simple prayer by saying, Heavenly Father, I believe and I receive your gift of grace right now, your gift of life eternal. Thank you that you made a way that I would not have to go the way of destruction, the way of separation from you and your goodness and your grace and your love. I receive you today as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name.